God, your name is worthy of worship. Your glory is incredible, and I thank you that you have gifted us with your word that we might come to know you by what you've said and what you've inspired and how you've worked throughout history. And I thank you, God, that there is no authority that we can turn to that is as sufficient or clear as your word. Help us today, Lord, to listen to what you have to say to us and reach into our hearts uh, so that we can have our distractions removed and, and come to greater, more fervent worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Nice. Yeah, see, I always have to do it twice, except for when Casey warms up for me. So uh, I'm Scott. I'm the pastor here. Um, you'll notice that I'm not using the wireless lapel mic. That's actually by choice. This thing sounds way better. Like if you have to listen to the recording, the other one's crackly. So if I hit it again, I apologize. Um, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's going to be on page 915. Um, if you, uh, while you're doing that, if you spend any time in a schoolyard, there's a certain phrase that you're going to end up hearing, whether it's elementary, middle, or maybe even high school if you're out on the track and field. But eventually you're going to hear the phrase, that's not fair. And I guarantee you're going to hear it. Why? Because children have an innate sense of what they judge to be fair or right. Just because they say it doesn't mean that whatever they're declaring is not fair is not actually fair. But they know it deep in their hearts. And the reality is that adults are not really that different. Uh, we want to be judges of what we deserve, what we should get, and why we should get it. Today we're going to be reading a parable of Jesus illustrating an important biblical doctrine uh, that Jesus summarized like this at the end of Matthew 19 when he said, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's Matthew 19.30. Uh, the doctrine that we'll be summarizing, I'm sorry, that we'll be learning about today is that God has the right to judge as he pleases, and it's not our place to judge what we deserve. That's a hard one to swallow. That's a deep pill to swallow um, because, again, we're not that different from those kids on the schoolyard. Uh, this doctrine is ultimately an outflow of what we would say is God's sovereignty, his sovereign, his overarching rule over all things, uh, his purity and his wisdom and his perfection and his actions um, play out in that. So uh, as we go through the text today, um, May we come to realize that we're, we, we are far more often like the grumbling workers than we care to admit, uh, because that's ultimately what hit me um, as I was preparing for this sermon. So let's read Matthew uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and read that in my literal Bible, because my text in front of me has so many markups, I'm going to end up reading some of the things I wrote instead of some of the things that God said. So, Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired, uh, the hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give, give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Now, when we look at this text, there's a couple times that the first are last and the last are first. Uh, the first time that the last are first is when the, the, the laborers are collecting their wages. The owner of the vineyard makes very clear, he says, uh, or rather, the, the master of the house makes very clear to the foreman. He says, pay, pay the, the, the people who work the shortest amount of time first. Now, the reason that that kind of violates our sensibility is because, frankly, they weren't there that long. The times that they worked, right? So when you read the beginning of the parable, when we read that the master goes out early in the morning, it means that he went out probably about before 6 a.m. The way that the, 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 the concept of time worked to the Jews was uh, basically hours of sunlight. So we say the first hour of the day is 6 a.m. because that's usually when the sun rises. Is that totally accurate? No, not really. This morning, if I remember correctly, the sun rose at 7.19 a.m., but I could just be remembering it wrongly. But the, but, the way, but the way that we should think about it is about six, right? So about six. The first hour of the day is sunlight, and here he goes out early, meaning before the first hour of sunlight, to collect the first workers. And the way that these people would work is they would work about a 12-hour day, so you've got the first hour of the day, or before the first hour of the day, the, the people coming. And in verse 2, you read that they agreed to work for a denarius, which was an actually really good wage for a day. That, was, that would be like minimum wage, uh, probably a little bit more than minimum wage, because most of the people at the time worked as slave labor, so they, they made less than uh, a denarius a day. So this is a good wage. This is a good amount. This will last these folks a while, so they agree to it. And then the master of the house goes out again about the third hour, which if my math is right, that's about 9 a.m. And he gets more. 
And they, they're, they're standing idle in the marketplace. That doesn't mean that they're sitting there gambling. It doesn't mean that they're sitting there literally kicking rocks in the street or playing kick the can. Nobody plays that anymore. But like, it doesn't mean that they're just doing nothing. It means they're waiting for labor. They're ready to work. They're standing idle. They're, they're at the ready. So the, the, he, he, the owner of the house goes and calls them too and says, you go into the venue too and whatever is right, I will give you. I want you to remember that, whatever is right. So they go, and then he goes out again about the sixth hour, which again, if my math is right, I am a pastor after all, uh, is about 12 in the afternoon, about noonish. And then the ninth hour, which is about three, and then at the 11th hour, which would be about five. So the, he, he gathers all these troops to, to go into his field at all these different times, but the last bit only worked like an hour. They didn't do very much. They should get one twelfth of the pay. If, if, if we're going by the, the, the worldly standard of, of hourly wages, right? Um, here in our day, you work and you work, uh, you're, unless you're salaried, but you work for an hourly wage and you have to collect your hours. You present them to your boss and then you get paid minimum wage, which is some weird number now. And I can't do that math in my head. So you get, if you work an eight hour day, you get minimum wage times eight. Minus breaks, actually, so that's more like six hours. But, but nonetheless, you get paid for what you work. But then the master of this house doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he pays the last first, those that only worked an hour. And they get a denarius. And man, I'll tell you, for some, for, if, if you went to work and you worked an hour of a day and you got paid an entire day's wage... You'd be dancing in the street. You, you'd be walking home with that paycheck and you're like, my goodness, I can afford more than top ramen this week. This is good. This is a great week. I'm going to enjoy this. These people were happy. They were, they were overjoyed. And, and then each group down the line still getting a denarius for not even working a day. They are praising the master of the ha this house. Man, we want to work for this guy again. Look how generous and kind he is to us. But then you get down to the last folks in verse 10. Now, when those who those hired first came, they thought they received more. Well, first of all, why were you guys watching? It's kind of a faux pas in today's world. Like when everybody gets their paycheck in their cubby, if you were walking around grabbing their paycheck, opening the envelope, looking in some other dude's paycheck, seeing how much they got. Eh, water cooler gossip would not be so good about you. So first off, why did these folks know about it? Like, unless, unless they heard the other folks all praising the master, like, thank you so much. I don't deserve this. They saw how generous the master was with the other folks, probably. So they're like, man, we worked the whole day. Maybe he'll give us two denarii. That would be great. But they get their hopes up. Because when each of them receive only a denarius, are they happy? No. Verse 11, and on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. They offer a complaint. These last only worked one hour and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. They suffered. This is the Near East. This is, this is Israel. 
this is this is an area where the sun shines more often than it does here in gloomy, sad Oregon. But man, when it comes summer, I don't like being out in the sun. So I can I can empathize with their complaint a little bit. But then the master replies in a surprising tone, as he always does in these parables of Jesus. Verse 13, he replies to them, friend. Now, that's not just like a cordial greeting. It's not like, hey, dude, chill out. Right. Like that's that's that that's him actually being tender and kind. If someone was screaming at you, you didn't pay me what you what you owe me. To have a tone to say, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. That's what God does to us whenever we come grumbling and complaining. He has, he does not just get mad. I get mad at my kids all the time. Last night, my, one of my boys was screaming at my, my wife uh, because he was upset about something. And you know how I responded? Did I respond, son, take a breath. No, I, tur- I, I turned and I, and I was like, this is the way you're talking to mommy. Do you like this? And he's like, no, no. And, and I was like, this is the tone of voice that you have. Is it good? No. Then stop, buddy. I responded with a similar tone of voice. But that's not how the Lord does it. The Lord doesn't just slap us to get our attention like I did with my volume of my voice. Anyway, he replies, the master of the house replies, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Well, yeah, I I, I guess I did. I guess we did, right? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose, I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. The Greek, by the way, of the I choose is it is my will to do this. It is my will to give this last worker as I give to you. And then comes the ground of the whole argument, right? Because this, this, this whole situation Sounds like it could be completely unreasonable. Well, this is a really mean master. He should, have, he should have paid them more because they worked harder. But verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, a couple things to note about what we just talked about. Um, As in all the parables, the master is meant to represent God and the workers are meant to represent God's laborers, which if you're a Christian, that's you. All Christians are God's laborers. And while we might think that the laborers are maybe people who have been Christians longer, right? Uh, that's, there's, there's like three main interpretations of, of this that have just kind of stuck. One is Christians who have been longer, like somebody who gives their life to Jesus at the age of seven. And then at age 70, they're, they're still serving Jesus. But that's not in this text, though time is a factor in this text. That's not, that's not even listed. Um, so this, this time, time remains in a, a, a large portion of the parable because it's supposed to be indicative of how much they've labored, how much work they've put into. And I don't know about you, but I've met, I've met 60 year old followers of Jesus that act like they've only been followers of Jesus for a week. So, uh, this, this is about the amount of effort they should have been putting into work. 
So uh, I, I don't think that that's necessarily the interpretation of the parable. Uh, another interpretation of the parable is about how we are, uh, you know, this is this is a, a covenantal view. So the first laborers would be like Moses, right? The the Abraham really, but the first laborers would be like Abraham being called to salvation, and the next would be Moses and the those in the Exodus. And you and I were all the 11th hour believers and God is so generous with us. Again, I don't think that's the interpretation. But I think what we need to understand here is a little bit more basic. That you and I and anybody who serves the Lord, it's a tiresome task. It really is. No matter how long we've been doing it, it's tiresome. There's some who have been laboring far longer than you and I. Some who are maybe in their twilight hours of, of going to be with the Lord. But there's also people who have been serving the Lord in different locales, different levels of persecution, different styles of, of ministry. Perhaps they've labored longer even than the 60-year-long 60 60 long believer, just in different ways. They've borne the scorching heat in other ways. So I think what we need to understand from this is, is that, again, these are the, God is the master and we are the laborers. There are people who labor far more than you and I. And then also another thing to take note of is that nowhere, nowhere in the parable is the quality of the workers discussed. That's a third interpretation is that the 11th hour workers obviously worked way harder than the, than the first hour workers. And so therefore they are entitled to more of a pay. That's, that's not right. <laughs> I don't think that's anywhere in the text, but I think it's incredible that the quality of the labor is not even listed, right? The, the early morning workers, it doesn't say, and they worked hard the whole time. It doesn't say they didn't work hard all the time. It all, the master also doesn't ask for resumes and proof of quality of work when he goes into the marketplace. He doesn't, he doesn't say like, all right, now I, 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 here's a sickle. Let's see how fast you can, you can start, uh, start cutting off the wheat heads, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He just chooses them. Why does the master choose them? Because he does. That's all we get out of this parable. And I think that we, we should walk away from this feeling honored to be chosen as any of the laborers. Because these laborers were all chosen by grace, just like you and I are chosen by grace. I love how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These folks were chosen by grace. They were chosen for work, but not because of their work. Just like you and I, we're not chosen because of how great moral creatures we are. We're taken as, as corpses from the bottom of the ocean and raised to life in Christ for work, not because of work. We all receive salvation by unmerited favor, unmerited grace, and we ought to expect that we receive from God from that same gracious hand as well.
A third thing to take note in uh, in this text um, is that when we when when we read this parable, it's contrasting the wealthy man, right? In chapter 19, if we were to reread chapter 19, uh, specifically starting in verse 16, we read about this rich young man. We went through this last week. I beat you over the head with it enough. I don't need to do it. But just as by, by way of reminder, rich young man comes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know, you have to obey the commandments. Which ones? Because I've done them all, man. Done them all. Okay, well then... Go ahead and sell all that you have uh, and follow me. And then he walks away sorrowful because he has many riches, right? So the, the, what, what we read of the rich young man, the rich young ruler, if you're reading other, uh, the gospel of Mark or Luke as well, but, but what we read there is a man who, by all worldly standards, is cream of the crop, He's rich. He's young. Like when I when I think in my mind of whoever that dude is, I imagine like that, like the guy in those uh, like men's cologne commercials. The like super well built has the the hair that flips magically into that 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 one position that for me would look like a comb over. And and uh, and then he, you know, like he's just he's great. He's wealthy. Everybody likes him. That's what I imagine when I read about the rich young man. He would have been first in the world. So we have a third thing to note that this is contrasting that. We have a contrast of a person who who should be first in the world and yet walks away feeling rejected because he rejected the offer of eternal life. So when we read that the first will be last and the last first, what we should first think about is the gospel connection that Jesus was not highly esteemed in this world. I mean, he was born in a stable. Well, potentially, we'll just say he is. So he was born in a stable was placed in a manger, grew up in a poor town. At some point, his, his earthly father is no longer in the picture, whether by death or something else. Joseph is, is gone. He was a carpenter, which is rough work. And then he becomes a teacher and is brutally murdered, even though he's perfectly righteous. By worldly standards, Jesus should have been a nobody. So when we read that the first will be last and the last will be first, we need to remember that Jesus is the last who, who, who became a sacrifice for us and who has given all glory. As John puts it in John 3.35, or rather as Jesus puts it, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All things. Everything that ever was, ever is, or ever will be is Jesus's. He's been given everything. He's the last who is first. So a couple applications that we need to walk away from with this. Uh, number one, we are more like the indignant workers than we like to admit. The grumblers. That sounds like actually a really good football team named the grumblers. But, but how many times have we looked on someone even in this world who didn't work as hard and yet succeeded, or, or, or maybe, maybe, they, uh, uh, maybe they have worked as hard, but they, they got more than we did, and we look on them, and, and we look on them with anger, even hatred, right? 
when in reality, we should actually be satisfied with whatever the Lord gives us, even if we see others receiving more than you and I. Now, uh, the, <laughs> the example I thought of initially when I thought of how to illustrate that from the Bible, I, I, I thought about the Israelites wandering through the wilderness and, and, uh, and they, they say, you know, oh, we're starving and this is terrible. And, and so God gives them manna and quail, right? And then they say, well, if we went back to Egypt, we had meat galore. And they're still envious. They're still covetous. And it's like, guys, they were beating you. They were killing you. Like, did you forget this? So that's a good example. But we went through that in Sunday school. And I try not to poach everything that Carl does because it seems like every week he's already saying what I'm going to say. So, uh, so I would instead like you to turn your attentions to Joshua chapter 7. A gentleman named Achan. He brings destruction on, uh, on Israel in battle. So if you would like to turn there and just kind of bookmark it for later, you can. But Joshua, or I'm sorry, Achan, what he ended up doing was he decided to steal from what was supposed to be devoted to the Lord. Uh, he, he saw things that were pleasant to his eyes and decided to take them and try and hide them in his tent. And so then Israel goes to a new battle at Ai and they get defeated. And Joshua's like, what is up, Lord? I thought you said you were going to give this land into our hands, right? We've just wandered in the desert for 40 years, man. Did you forget this? And, uh, and, and God says that there's somebody in, the, somebody in the camp of Israel who's decided to commit a sin and take what belonged to him. So we get down to the end of the story, and it's actually kind of a fun story because God reveals specifically who it is, right? By lot, the casting of dice, essentially, uh, by lot, it just so happens that his clan is chosen. And then it just so happens that his family's chosen. And it's just so happened that his own tent is chosen by lot. And, and you know what happens? Achan confesses. He, he, and, and what he says is actually pretty relatable to you and I. Um, he, he gets found out and he says, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is verses 20 and 21. Uh, the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing, weighing 50 shekels. Just that's a heavy bar. Just, just know that. Big bar. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan got found out. He confessed. And everything went well, right? No, no. Achan was stoned to death because people like that need to be purified from among the people of God. Somebody who is so envious that they're going to take, take what God should, what God deserves and keep it for themselves. Another good example would be Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, but I'm not going to turn there right now. What I want to point out is that envy and coveting is a poison that causes us to do things that we know are wrong. You and I are far more like the grumbling workers than we would like to admit. Things on earth cause us to get jealous, and that jealousy causes us to do things we know we should not do. 
The cure for that poison is to find contentment in what the Lord gives us in this life and the next and to take rebukes when he brings them. Um, a good example of that would be Paul, uh, chapter, Philippians chapter 4. Paul has spent all this time in prison. Uh, people don't know where he is, and so the Philippian church sends a dude to go find him. He finds him. The guy gets sick on the way and can't return to the Philippians right away. And so the Philippians get worried, and they send a gift with him, and they're kind of wondering, did it ever reach Paul? Is he all right? And then Paul sends another messenger back, and Paul writes this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, uh, by, which means that they had no idea where he was or what was going on. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Hold on, pause. The dude's in a jail, right? Like he's under house arrest, but he's, he's in prison. He's facing potential execution and he's not in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Everybody knows that verse should not be on your gym shoes. If you, if you pay attention to that whole section, the I can do all things through him who strengthens me should be paraphrased in our mind. I can endure all things through him who gives me strength. When we become like the grumbling workers and say, Lord, you should do more of that for me, which is not how we're going to say it. We're not going to sound like a three-year-old just... <laughs> but that's basically what we are in our minds. Anyway, um, the cure, the cure for when we become those grumbling workers is to repent and find contentment in the Lord. While Paul was grateful for the Philippians care, he endured his sufferings joyfully because the Lord had taught him contentment through rebukes. And I'm going to be honest, when I read this section, I really wanted to think of myself better than these guys when I, when I read uh, Matthew chapter 20. And this is, this is pastoral confession time because I, I get to the end and I'm like, I know this text. I've read it before. I know exactly what it's going to say. It's going to say that, uh, that we need to know that the Lord is good at, uh, is, is always right in what he gives us. It's what the master says. I will give you whatever is right. And I, I wanted to know, like, man, I'm so glad I'm not like those grumbling workers. But then I really started thinking about it and praying about it. And I realized that I can actually identify more with their disappointment than I want to admit. I see friends with, uh, with ministries that are successful by worldly standards. Oftentimes I get compared to those friends or... You know, I talk to them on the phone. They're like, yeah, man, everything's going so great. We got, we got three worship bands. We're doing two services. I'm not even having to teach anymore. We got a preaching rotation. We've got, you know, like all these things that I envy. I get tired of my own voice. I know you guys get tired of my voice. But, but like I see these people that I, that, that, that I, and I feel that envy grow. I've been frustrated when I worked in, 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 uh, in the marketplace and I'd see people get promotions that I didn't and I thought I deserved it more than they did. 
Or I feel that envy well up when I look at people with my dream car, which is a Tesla in case anybody's curious, uh, <laughs> or, or better homes, or for goodness sakes, people that actually own their own homes. I have envy for those things. And the venom of that envy seeps into sections of my heart that I didn't even know were vulnerable, that I didn't even know had cracks. I am a lot more like the grumbling workers than I care to admit. Lord, I toil all the time. I work so hard. I do all these things. Why am I not being blessed like these other folks? Why can't you give me more than a denarius? We are not the judge. And yet so often we try to judge the judge for his work. Listen, the promise that, that he made to these workers was a denarius for the day. And the promise that he has made for you and I is ultimately eternal life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's our wage. That's what we deserve. As sinners, we should just get death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, free means free to us, means we did not spend to get it. It doesn't mean it's not costly to God. It cost him his own son. He has been immensely generous to us already, promising a wage that we don't deserve. Now, the second, the second application is just something to walk away with, just something to remember, that oftentimes there's people we put on a pedestal who we think, man, they're the best Christians ever. They, uh, they, they obviously uh, look at their ministry, how successful it is, or, or, or look at how much God has blessed them with, and we think, man, they must be awesome in the faith. But the reality is that sometimes those people are not the best. Just look at, just look at Saul from 1 Samuel 8, right? Like the, the, the Israelites wanted a king like the nations. And so God gives them this dude that's a head taller than everybody else and muscular. And man, he looks the part of a king. But the king that Israel really needed was David, a little shepherd boy. Because the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. So God's no, God knows what's best. And that's why Paul in Romans 11 can say, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is without judge. And when we try to be his judge, we are in sin and need to repent. Well, why didn't God do this for me? Because... Well, why did God choose me? Because by grace, be filled with gratitude. May we friends read this parable and find ourselves doing two things. One, avoiding the urge to grumble at the Lord when we don't get what we think we deserve. I promise you, you deserve far worse than you get. You deserve death. And yet you wake up. You woke up this morning. And number two, remember that we are often no better than the grumblers in this parable. 
I've been doing this X number of days, years, months, weeks, and this new guy thinks he can come in and do better than me. Yeah. Yeah, he might actually, <laughs> but he might not. And you might need to be there to rescue him when he doesn't. Remember the gospel truth that God is completely sovereign over circumstances, even circumstances of disaster. If you need to be reminded of that, go ahead and read the book of Lamentations. The prophet Jeremiah wrote it after God decided to punish Jerusalem to the point where people even cannibalized. After the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes this. He says, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the most high God that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? You deserve far worse than God will ever really give you. But even if you get something terrible, you still deserve worse. And God is so generous as to hold back whatever you truly deserve. We need to know our place, friends. And this parable illustrates that quite well. We are not judges of him, nor can we judge his judgments. Let me say that again, because I want you to hear it. We are not judges of him, nor can we judge his judgments. It is our duty to humbly submit to his will in all things. Therefore, submit to his sovereign will, saints. Don't grumble like the workers, but recognize that he has the right to do with what he has because he is God. Let's pray. Lord, whatever our lot, may we learn to say thank you. Whatever we get, may we learn to not grumble. May we learn to not curse you. But instead, may we, may we learn to submit. In our heart, may we dethrone ourselves and place you where you rightly deserve to be. And in our mind, may we learn to reflect on you and your character and your nature at all times. For you are Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods, creator of the universe. And we are but dust. Let us learn our place, O Lord. May we remember that sometimes the last are first and the first are last. And you, you deserved so much better than you got, Lord. And yet you died to redeem us from our sins. To your honor and glory and praise, Jesus. Amen. Whatever our lot, may the Lord teach us to say, it is well with our soul. Go in peace, saints.